HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Welcome to What Doesn't Kill You? Um, I have a great show for you today because I, uh, those of you who are regular listeners know that a few weeks ago I interviewed Kathleen Merrigan. She was my last show for 2016, and uh, during that show I was rumbling the praises of an organization that I particularly admire called the IPES, the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Foods. And uh, one of their members, one of their uh, North American members is going to join me today. Molly Anderson from Middlebury College will be joining me today to talk about food systems and food policy in the United States. But before we go there, we're going to go here. And that's, you know, my usual joys and sorrows thing. And, um, you know, honestly, people, I'm just so freaking despondent over our in- impending inauguration that I literally do not have a single joy to tell you about. I don't have a joy. And usually I work really hard to get a joy going here. <laughs> but today, no, I didn't have a joy in my heart. And so I just have some um, sort of disturbing but interesting news to tell you. So uh, there was a front page report at the Huffington Post, and this was also echoed in the New York Times. A new report on sushi in Los Angeles says that 47 percent of the fish that was tested is mislabeled. So that made me think about the overall food fraud business in around the world, which I learned when writing my book, What Do- What's the Matter with Meat? Um, I learned that food fraud is a $47 billion business globally that it supports both organized crime and drug dealers, um, among others, as well as just kind of your average middleman, you know, scumbag who's looking to defraud the population. And so anyway, I looked into fish fraud, which is really a huge problem in the United States and very unfair to local fishermen. Um, And it turns out that uh, there is a marvelous uh, organization called Oceana. I don't know if any of you have looked at their website, but I I strongly recommend it, especially if you're a regular fish eater. I myself do not eat fish, so fortunately I am spared the pain of fish fraud. But nevertheless, uh, Oceana is a nonprofit that studies the fish supply. And um, they found in the most recent – most recently they found – Results from 200 studies from 55 countries. Um, The U.S. boasts an average seafood fraud rate of 30% of all the fish in this country, which is mislabeled, and 58% of those are fish that could cause health problems from toxins or allergens, for example, Escalar, which is uh, frequently substituted for white tuna. But here are some other results from an earlier report, uh, 2010-2012. They collected 1,200 samples in 21 states from 674 regions retail outlets. And here's the bad news, people. 
Mislabeling was found in 27 of the 46 fish types tested. That's 59% of all fish. Salmon, snapper, cod, tuna, sole, halibut, and grouper were the top collected fish types. Snapper and tuna, 87% of snapper and and 59% of tuna were the most commonly mislabeled fish types. Only seven of the 120 red snapper samples were honestly labeled. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Um, This is out of 1,200 samples. Between one-fifth to more than one-third of the halibut, grouper, cod, and Chilean sea bass samples were mislabeled. 44% of all the grocery stores, restaurants, and sushi venues visited sold mislabeled seafood. And 84% of the white tuna samples were actually Escalar, a species that can cause serious digestive issues for some individuals who eat more than a few ounces. So basically, it's really just as you want to know your farmer, know your food, you want to know your fishermen. And Obama, in his last few months in office, has been actually over the last year, has been working to try to rectify that by creating a better system of traceability from um, fishing boat to table. And uh, that is all still sort of pending legislation. I think given the givens, we can imagine that that effort will be languishing over the next four years. Um, And we're hoping that it's no more than that. Um, And then yesterday, the other thing that really struck me was um, the Times had a long piece on our incoming director of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, a man who has made a career of fighting the EPA on behalf of large corporations who seek to pollute with impunity. And today, the Times features our incoming Secretary of Labor, Andrew Puster, who has spent his career fighting improvements in conditions and wages for workers. Meanwhile, ethics investigations are being sidelined. All of these dirtbags that are being selected for the cabinet are being fast-tracked. What is wrong with the government? What's wrong with the Democrats? And why is any of this outrageous behavior, including Trump calling diplomatic shots before his inauguration or his refusal to release any documents pertaining to his taxes or business holdings, his refusal to divest himself of his business, why are we helpless in the face of this behavior? I don't understand. So if you have the answer, please write to me on my show page or Twitter feed at K Corrigan K. That's K C O double R I G A N K, like wrong way Corrigan, only it's K Corrigan K. So, I mean, I don't understand where our legislators are in letting this go forward. I, I'm just, I am baffled. Um, Facebook is full of, you know, numbers to call and people to see and things to do. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to DC for the Women's March. I expect to see all of you there or in your local march. And I am certain I'm going a few days early and I am certainly going to be spending a day walking around the Senate and the House of Representatives demanding to know why this guy is getting to do whatever he wants with impunity. It just doesn't make sense. Anyway, with that said, we will take a short break and then we'll be right back with Molly Anderson uh, from uh, Middlebury College. She is uh, going to be talking about the wonderful uh, International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, IPES food. So stay tuned. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified Seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. Fun 
My guest today is uh, Molly Anderson. She is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Food Studies at Middlebury College in Vermont, where she teaches about food and hunger, uh, sorry, hunger and food security, fixing food systems and sustainability. She is involved in food system planning at the state and regional scales, participates in the regional Food Solutions New England Network. I'd like to know more about that. And the National Interinstitutional Network for Food, Agriculture, and Sustainability, as well as being a member of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, uh, uh, IPES-FOOD. She was a coordinating lead author on the International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge, Science, and Technology for the Development for development, I'm sorry, Molly, I'm kind of botching this up, and served on the board of the Community Food Security Coalition for six years. She has worked as a private consultant for domestic and international organizations with Oxfam America and at Tufts University, where she was the founding director of the Agriculture, Food, and Environment Graduate Program in the School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. And she directed the Tufts Institute of the Environment for two years. See, the reason I screw up biographies like that is because they just make me feel so bad about my own paltry accomplishments that I I just want to sabotage sabotage you before you even get on the air, Molly. That's how I am. That's the kind of person I am. <laughs> Welcome. Well, well, thanks, Katie. And and I should say everybody screws up the, the full name of the ISTAD, the International Assessment. It's such a cumbersome name, oh, and knowledge is in there, but it's not in the acronym for... Uh, various reasons, maybe because it made it even more cumbersome. Yes, absolutely. You really can't even say that. I mean, ISTAD, I guess. I, I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, welcome to the program, Molly. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and I should remind people that once again, uh, the, which I keep forgetting to announce the name of the show, but this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. And I am your host, Katie Kiefer, just in case you didn't know that already. Um, Molly, why don't we start by you talking about IPES, because I was yodeling your praises uh, during my interview with Kathleen Merrigan a few weeks ago. Um, I just love your newsletter to death, and I love and admire the people who are, uh, you know, participating in this organization. So give us a thumbnail of what it is, when it started, and how it works. Well, um, I'd be glad to do that. It's uh, EPIS Food is uh, a group of about 20. The the maximum number is 25, but I think we're at 20 right now. Um, Scientists, NGO people, people. activists, uh, people who are working on food and farming systems from many different perspectives. It includes people who come from different disciplines. For instance, my background is in systems ecology, Hmm. but there are other people who are political scientists, uh, agronomists, um, lots of other things. The the idea of EPAS Food is to bring together a group that could tackle some of the big challenges that are facing us, some of the global challenges in food and agriculture, and do so independently without having to answer to folks who might tell us, oh, no, 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 you, you can't deal with that because that's a little too politically sensitive. Hmm. So uh, Olivier Deschuter, who was the special rapporteur on Right to Food um, until, let's see, 2014, I think, Mm -hmm. is when he finished his mandate. Um, He started this up. He and Olivia Yambi, who had previously worked with UNICEF, are the co-chairs of the group. We have a secretariat of really fabulous people who help support us. And then the group comes together a couple of times a year uh, face-to-face so that we can talk about um, not only our agenda of the things that, that we think are really important to be tackling, but also discuss the, the products that are in the works and work through the different perspectives that we have on what each each one should say, what the recommendation should be. Uh-huh. It For me, it's really been... Um, an incredible opportunity to interact with some of the people who I consider some of the smartest uh, folks working on food and agriculture internationally. Um, after working on the ISTAD, it's a real pleasure to have interaction with Hans Heron again. He was one of the, the co-directors of the ISTAD along with Judy Wakungu, uh, and then Bob Watson was sort of... Um, working above them as directing the the entire project. But I have tremendous respect for this group of people 
and also for the process that we've established, mm -hmm. which is intentionally not just interdisciplinary but transdisciplinary. It's reaching beyond academia, reaching into different ways that people see the world and see problems. For instance, uh, the perspective of people coming from social movements and agroecology uh, is a huge social movement worldwide now. Uh, their perspective is really quite different from the perspective of most academicians, but it's critical that we be looking and understanding how different people approach uh, both problems and solutions. Absolutely. Well, you guys published uh, just just this past year at the end of the year, or close to the end of the year, you published, a, or I guess it was in the summer, wasn't it? Um, your comprehensive report called Uniformity to Diversity. And that's what we're going to be discussing today. And that was uh, like about 60, 70 pages of um, first laying out, you had three sections, you laid out the problems, um, you laid out the sort of well, what you call lock-ins, which I, th I thought the psychology aspect of this was very interesting. When you talk about the interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary, I mean, including sort of mindsets and the way people think about problems or think about solutions was such an important part of this process. And then finally, you give some solutions. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, um, some of the main points that, that came out of that paper? Yeah. Uh, let, let me say first that this was our first technical report from EPES Food, and folks can can see it if they go online to ipes-food.org. They can get a copy of the report uh, and read for themselves what it has to say. But the the key messages, in some ways echoed many of the key messages from the ISTAD, which had been published in 2009. Wow. Uh, that made a huge splash internationally, although I, I have to say it was suppressed in the United States and no support really from the U.S. government was given to the ISTAD. Yeah. But the messages are that the way that we are feeding ourselves, the way that we are producing food, distributing it, um, processing it, um, and then consuming it, the entire food system is bankrupt now. It's basically killing us uh, and killing the, the planet because uh -huh. the environmental problems that are associated with industrialized um, food production, processing, distribution, retailing, the, the whole shebang, the problems are massive, yes. and they're only getting worse. So we desperately need an alternative. It's true that that food system has uh, succeeded in producing huge volumes of food and distributing it all around the world. And uh, I'm sure some people who are listening are kind of um, gasping in, in shock that I would say it's it's completely dysfunctional, but we have to have a system that's actually restoring degraded land and providing healthy food and sustainable livelihoods, mm -hmm. which is not what we have. But that's that right. is the promise of agroecology. We, we can tweak what we've got now, and that's what has been tried in most ways in industrialized countries. But tweaking is not enough. We really need a, a fundamentally different model of agriculture that's based on diversified farming systems, yeah. uh, farming landscapes, um, replacing chemical inputs, making sure that we're restoring land, restoring biodiversity, uh, trying to protect the biodiversity that's remaining. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the the aim of the report and what we tried to do with these lock-ins is show why a system that is so dysfunctional that's broken in so many ways despite having high yields why it's persisted yeah that's the big question it if, is if we've got this great alternative in front of us mm -hmm. 
why isn't everybody switching over? I, well, that is really the fundamental uh, question. But I, I wanted to bring up something that I thought was interesting because your report pointed out that there has been a three-year decline in income over the past three years for American farmers despite the use of our GMO crops, despite the high-yield grain crops. And I'm just curious, why is that, given that the level of productivity associated with industrial farming practices not to mention the fact that the fuel prices are unusually low right now and crop insurances, you know, give farmers a, a real leg up in terms of industrialized farming. Why is there a decline in income? I don't understand. Well, you, you don't have to go to the EPA's food report to discover that. This is uh, very well known and agricultural economists, people working for the Economic Research Service for USDA will tell you the same thing. It's basically that commodity prices have dropped since 2013. Mm -hmm. There's been a huge drop in revenue for uh, commodities, especially corn and soy. Right. Um, so we've had multiple years. It, it's basically supply and demand. Uh -huh. And it, it comes back to this overemphasis on productivity that is creating so many problems. We've had multiple years of record or near record corn and soybean harvests. Uh, and corn and soybean have historically been about, oh, 25% of farm sector revenue. But farmers are so dependent on those few commodity crops. We don't have a system of supply management in this country. Right. Uh, we've got constant efforts, constant research to increase productivity, even though basically we've got too much of the stuff. Right. The glut in the market has depressed the prices, right? That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. You know, well, that brings me to my next point. I was setting you up for this. Um, mm -hmm. you t there was a, a significant section of the report devoted to the concept of export orientation in global farming systems. And I really want you to unpack what that means for people. Because, I, you know, that is clearly sort of at the root of the problem with the soy and corn glut. Um, you know, the fact that we are gearing so much of our, of our agricultural ex, uh, ex output towards export, and I don't mean just grains, I mean also like the meat industry, you mm -hmm. know, derives a great deal of its income. Just to let you know, I just, I f I'm about to publish a book about the meat industry, so, um, so I'm come up kind of, kind of really into that whole, you know, okay. that, that whole thing of like, you know, where is our meat going? How much of it does it, how much of that accounts for farming income in the, in the nation and so forth? So talk a little bit about export orientation and how that has um, shaped our, both our farm policy and our food policy. Okay. Or lack um, thereof. <laughs> well, we have been pushing exports, uh, pushing uh, an increased balance of trade uh, so that we're exporting more than we import, which mm -hmm. is pretty tough because we're importing so much. But all of this export isn't really helping farmers. It's helping the companies that control export, right. the big multinational trading firms, uh, the Bungies, the Cargills, the uh, Archer, Daniel Archer Daniels Midlands, Midland, right. the uh, different companies that are into this worldwide, uh, buying up wherever they can buy up most cheaply and selling it wherever they can sell it at the best price, which is working very much to the disadvantage, especially of small-scale and poor farmers. They're thrown out there on a global market, and they have to compete with uh, farmers, I'm thinking small-scale poor farmers from other countries. They right. have to compete with farmers who are being subsidized in the EU and the United States mm -hmm. and who have lots of other things going for them. So uh, the latest figures are that only about 23% of food is being traded globally. Um, most people rely for their food, most people worldwide, on local and national markets. Small-scale farmers are producing 70 to 80 percent of the food that's being consumed worldwide and selling it mainly in these, these markets, which um, are being called more and more territorial markets. And there's a, a big push to strengthen these uh, local and national markets to help poor farmers, uh, but also a big push in the United States for local food systems mm -hmm. because it's much easier for farmers 
to benefit from a local food system. In, in the clearest case, where farmers are direct marketing through something like uh, community-supported agriculture or a farmer's market, they can actually set their prices. And, of course, if, if they set it too high, nobody's going to buy from them. So mm-hmm. they have to operate within reasonable limits. But if they are doing uh, good things for the environment, then they can tell their customers about that. Uh, if they're treating their labor well, they can tell their customers about that. And people care about these other values beyond just what's your total yield of, of corn or soy. Um, it, it matters more and more to the American consumer, but also to people in other countries. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, with international trade, we're talking about commodities, which are fungible. They're interchangeable. So if you have something that's been grown uh, using extra special, careful environmental stewardship, then that's not the, – the farmer is not going to get a better return for that. If, if they're selling under a certification system, uh, something like organic and for labor – fair trade, mm-hmm. then they might get a premium. But the commodity crops, which are the ones that are being traded internationally, those are just everything's in one big pot. It's all mixed together. Right. And farmers don't get uh, that advantage for adding value. And they also don't have any control over the price because they are price takers. The prices are determined on the stock, on the Commodity exchange, correct? Yeah. The Chicago Mercantile yeah. Market? Is mm-hmm. that, yeah. This stuff is so complex for me that I, I really have a hard time wrapping my, you know, undereducated brain around it. Um, I, I think it's hard for everybody. <laughs> and it's one reason that people really appreciate local food systems and the ability to interact with farmers. Uh, it It's an interesting phenomenon that some of the things that are good for the environment, good for farmers, good for public health are also things that people like, that they enjoy. Having more contact with farmers is great. And choosing products that are better for the environment obviously has environmental Mm -hmm. benefits. So I think it's one of the reasons this financialization of of the whole food system uh, and the way that that um, interchanges, exchanges of food have become so complex and so distant from the average consumer. People like going to their local co-op or their farmer's market because it's so immediate and so tangible. They can see what they're getting. They can talk to the farmer. They know exactly what's up, or, or at least they think they do. <laughs> you know, the problem is, is that people, I mean, in this country, I'm going to focus mostly on the United States, A, because, as you mentioned at the top of the program, when your ISTAD report came out in, what was it, 2009 or 2008? Mm-hmm. It was basically... 2009, it, it was published. It was ignored, <clears throat> as was the Plate of the Union initiative uh, that was started by, uh, you know, Ricardo Salvador and, and Olivier de Schutter and, you know, some of these other big... Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan. Um, you know, that whole initiative, which was supposed to garner support for, uh, you know, exa- even just examining the food system. And it really, I mean, I promoted it as much as I could on the program. And, and it really, it just went nowhere, didn't you? I mean, would you agree with that? They were, I, I was very disappointed that, that those issues, which I see as highly political, did not somehow make it into public discourse. And I guess, I, I guess my question to people like you is, is how do we make this... Um, make these arguments compelling enough for people to really start paying attention. I, I don't understand why there is this definite, deafening silence on the part of, you know, at least the middle class, you know, the people who who, who can go to the farmer's market and mm-hmm. do have the money to buy a slightly more expensive product. I mean, I don't understand why there isn't more traction in this movement than there has been, and you've obviously been working in it for a long time. How do you explain that? Well, it's interesting that you would ask about that because I was just on a call a couple of days ago. I'm part of the narrative, uh, new narrative subgroup of Food Solutions New England. You mentioned that when you mm-hmm. were introducing me. And we are very interested in 
reforming our food system in New England, uh, getting to 50% of the food that we consume in New England being produced in New England, not not literally, but 50% of the value uh-huh. being produced in New England by the year 2060. And we got together and did a very complicated systems mapping exercise, which I thought was a lot of fun. Uh, but then I'm a, a systems ecologist by training. Um, some people thought it was a little mind-boggling, and they glazed over. But everybody, I think, was happy with the results. And the results said that one of the things that we really have to do to uh, enact this reform is to shift the narrative in the United States. Mm-hmm. The narrative has become fixated on industrialized agriculture. Yes. And there have been massive amounts of money poured into propaganda to support that. Uh, Frances Moore LePay, who is one of my heroes. Absolutely. Yeah, she has been pushing for this new narrative for ages, really ever since Diet for a Small Planet came out. Yeah. And she just uh, rewrote with Joseph Collins the um, food myths book, World Myths. Yeah, I interviewed uh, her for that on this program. Yeah, it's it's down to 10. Yeah. She decided to simplify it a little bit. And these myths that she's fighting against are still very much out there in public discourse. Among the myths is this idea that we're fighting about in EPA's food, that you need industrialized farming to feed the world. Right. As if with 15% of the the food being internationally traded that we're actually feeding the world and with about 800 million million people hungry and food insecure by a very conservative estimate by the Food and Agriculture Organization Mm -hmm. as if we're feeding the world now. We're producing more than enough, but we're obviously not feeding the world adequately and, and not feeding it with healthy food. So our question is, how do we shift that narrative? So we are going to a lot of the other organizations that seem to be shifting it successfully. For instance, there's been some progress with climate change. There's been uh, a, a lot of progress with tobacco in shifting the narrative. Nobody would tell you now, believably, that tobacco is healthy and (laughs) <laughs> uh, doctors smoke cigarettes because it's so good for them, um, which which was part of the advertising when oh yeah it, just a few decades ago for sure you look at some of those old ads and you're just incredulous yes how did people buy this stuff yeah but it was because of the propaganda mm-hmm. that they were mm-hmm. being fed relentlessly by the tobacco industry in that case and by the food industry mm. in in the current case. And I have to say the U.S. government has not done nearly enough to protect the public from this harmful discourse, the, to protect us from the kinds of food that we shouldn't be eating to make sure that healthy food is widely available to everyone in this country at prices that we can afford it's it's been very discouraging to see the ways in which uh the department of agriculture has kind of marched uh side by side in with, lockstep yeah in lockstep with ag industry yeah absolutely ridiculous yeah, I, I remember going to a meeting in washington dc when um there was an official from uh, one of the food industries who was followed by, who gave his, his spiel about uh, what sustainable agriculture is all about and how, how what they're doing is really promoting the health of the public, which is mm-hmm. not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was followed by Catherine Wotecki from um, the Department of, of Agriculture. And her first comments were, it's just amazing how similarly we see the world. Oof. But it, it's not amazing, given the amount of lobbying that's gone on, the amount of campaign donations that Absolutely. have been made by the food industry. Um, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I 
think in in this respect I'm fairly pragmatic and in other respects I would say I err on the side of being idealistic Mm -hmm. when it comes to food policy and the kinds of things that I would like to see happening in this country I'm definitely a an idealist uh, especially compared to someone like Ferd Hefner who is about as firmly rooted on the ground as as a policy wonk can get uh-huh. uh, and and I hope that you have him on the show I know at some I've, point. I've just been seeing his name somehow everywhere like the Scarlet Pimpernel and I'm realizing why haven't I interviewed this person before so I thank you for, for suggesting that um, and to go back to what you said about lobbying I noticed uh, and I wrote, wrote this down in my notes uh, the report your report mentions that 130 million dollars was spent in lobbying Congress by food uh, by food companies, and that mm-hmm. includes things like Cargill, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, or you know all of the big grain uh, grain producers, et cetera. So that, in case people wanted an actual figure, 130 million right there. That was just for last year, I guess, right? Imagine what you could do with 130 million dollars. Yeah. Right. What you could do to help farmers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what you could do you know, to help retrofit your really... farm, to, you know, to provide them better equipment to manage uh, effluent and waste. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the other thing that I find, you know, so tragic. I know we're getting off on a tangent here, but but just, um, you know, one of the things that I, I think of as, as one of the most unfair aspects of um, not only how the public views farming, um, but also how the government abuses farmers. And that is that they, you know, like when you sign up to, to um, as I said, I'm big meat wonk but it's when you sign up to to grow chickens or something like that um you know you're you are left with dead birds and a lot of waste material and no assistance from the parent company in managing either of those things and then it's and then people are, are shocked and horrified when that waste winds up in in your water supply or you know a lagoon breaks or something like that i mean it's just i think that's criminal myself i think that that farmers are horribly abused uh in the sense of of being given no help with managing some of these major ecological problems that are well I would agree attendant. there there is a, a big program equip it's one of the the um, uh, federal programs that supports farmers but equip gives massive amounts of money to CAFOs confined animal feeding operations that's one of the ways that all of this money spent on lobbying mm-hmm. has continued to benefit some of the big producers. Right. So instead of saying we're going to save this money for good things, for cover crops, for crop rotations, right. for small farmers who are trying, who are doing the best they they can, but need a little bit of help, say to put in riparian buffers. There's a new law in Vermont that says that dairy farms need to to do a bit more to protect water quality. And it's really hurting the dairy farmers here who are already in trouble. But um, equip funds can still be used to fund CAFOs, and far too much of that money is going to support these people who are doing the wrong thing from the very beginning. They're not even trying to do the right thing. Well, I, I have to say that um, from the point of view of somebody who uh, is growing chickens for Tyson or something like that, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, if you if you go into that business, I mean, we can argue the rights and wrongs of the business. But the reality is, is that it's usually just some bloke who thinks he's going to make a, you know, make some money by by growing chickens and doesn't realize that 50,000 chickens is going to produce, you know, 150 million pounds of, of bird shit every year. And what is mm-hmm. he supposed to do with that? And that in that case, I would like to see equip give those funds to a farmer like that who is basically living from paycheck to paycheck anyway mm-hmm. um, those are the people that I think need to be supported and you know you can argue the the pros and cons of that style of, of um, animal production but the reality is is that those facilities are polluting uh, you know regularly and those people who engage in that in that business i think need help um but i wanted to because we're, we're gonna run out of time molly um <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to talk about your eight lock-ins because that sure. sort of speaks to what we're talking a little bit about um in the sense of like trying to shift the narrative and trying to get people to think of new ways of doing things so can you like just buzz us through the eight lock-ins yeah i i can go through them quickly some of them are complicated, yeah. and I was rereading the report uh, just because I knew that we'd be focusing on it, and I thought, wow, um, the, the folks who 
did the final cut on this, and I'd have to say that I went through it many times. The whole panel contributed to this report. Emile Frisson was the primary author, and he deserves a lot of credit, as well as our uh, secretariat, who again went through it um, just with with a fine-tooth comb. But I think it's very readable in explaining how those lock-ins work. Yeah, I thought so. The, the first one, uh, we point to path dependency, the fact that um, the, the way that industrialized agriculture is set up is kept in place by policies that incentivize more industrialized agriculture instead of incentivizing a transition to diversified farming systems, uh, which would be for the public good, of course, and for farmers' good. But farmers are caught in this. Uh, the whole the whole agricultural industry, in a sense, is caught in this this vicious circle, with a few players benefiting disproportionately from it. Right. The very large companies that are becoming even larger now with mega mergers that are happening, right. but that path dependency keeps a lot of things in place, just like a farmer who starts growing corn and soy gets locked into corn and soy because he's invested in really expensive machinery and right. infrastructure to deal with corn and soy, and that's what he knows to do. Yeah. So it, it's not really uh, the farmer's fault, it's the system's fault which is not to say that there's nobody responsible for fixing the system. I would point to our government, first of all, but um, we, we can't point to individual farmers and say, hey, you're making bad decisions here. Right. Uh, the second issue is export orientation. We talked about that a little bit yep. already, that far too much of our uh, policy, our subsidies are going into these commodity crops that are being exported largely for animal feed, yes. to some extent for ethanol, but we're focusing on exports instead of focusing on local markets for the things that people actually eat, uh, vegetables, which we should be eating a whole lot more of, right. um, local foods that would give farmers a little bit more of a decent uh, income. The third lock-in is the expectation that we have developed in this country over the last few decades of having very cheap food, yep. of paying only about 11% of our income on average for food. Of course, people who are low income pay much more than that as a percentage of their, their uh, budget. And people who are getting the maximum allocation from SNAP the um, Supplemental Nutrition Action Program, uh, they cannot afford a healthy diet, as uh, is recommended by USDA. But by and large, we expect to get really cheap food, and uh, our government is providing that with the understanding that this is something that benefits people in urban areas. There's been kind of an urban bias in food policy for a long time. Having cheap food certainly doesn't benefit farmers. Farmers, right. uh, I, I mentioned the dairy farmers in Vermont a few minutes ago. Their costs of production are higher than the prices they're getting for milk now. Yes. So it's no surprise that they are going out of business right and left. Yeah. You might be able to hang on for a year or so, but you're definitely not going to hang on for long, and you're definitely not going to be encouraging your kids to go into farming with those kinds of prices. That's right. But the public wants this and would be very angry if we didn't have it. I'd have to say that cheap food, having cheap food available, is also benefiting employers who don't have to pay living wages, who can get away with not paying living wages. If we had people literally starving in our country because they couldn't afford to buy food. And there are some people who uh, can't afford to buy food at all or who can't afford many, many more people who can't afford to buy healthy food. Um, there is hunger in this country. There is. I mean, if, 40 if million we, food insecure households. 
That's a yeah, USDA figure. About 14% of our households, yeah. 12.7. 40 million by people. By the latest figures. Unbelievable. It, it really is. This is unknown, country, by the way. If, if this was obvious to people, if people mm-hmm. were uh, literally starving on the streets, then it would be intolerable to the American public the juxtaposition of very wealthy and just absolutely destitute would be awful. Of, of course, that juxtaposition is happening internationally. I just read that uh, the latest report from Oxfam International says that eight people in the world now have the same wealth, the same assets as the lowest 50 percent oh of the population. Uh, so inequality is rising. The expectation of cheap food allows us to continue with that inequality in this country. The, the next lock-in is compartmentalized thinking, where we aren't thinking about the whole food system. We're thinking about one thing at a time. Yeah. For instance, we think about increasing productivity, and that's been such a, a monomania of our research institutions for so long that if you just increase yields and productivity, then everything will be fine. But while we've been increasing yields and productivity, the environment has gone to hell. We've seen uh, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture grow to around 29%. That's the upper range of a report in 2012. Some people say it's even higher when you include everything. We've seen uh, wages for farm workers locked in at stagnant levels. Yes, uh, haven't haven't grown in decades. It's really shameful, and we've seen a public health crisis with yes. obesity and all of the diseases, including uh, many of the top killers in the United States, which are linked to obesity. We've seen that increasing at exponential rates. Yeah. So it's that compartmentalized thinking that says, well, yeah, we can tackle obesity with uh, uh, exercise programs, stomach staples or exercise. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> uh, and, and that'll take care of the problem instead right. of saying it's a problem that that is really permeating our entire food system. Yeah. The, the next lock in is and tell me if I need to go faster on these. But the next one is short-term thinking, uh, which is really driven by political cycles of politicians who want to be reelected yeah. and are not thinking about the future, who are thinking about whatever will bring short-term benefits to their own districts. Uh, Wendell Berry and Wes Jackson had a really good um, op-ed in the New York Times I think it must have been over a year ago, on a 50-year farm bill, the things that we should be looking at in the farm bill. And they focused on soil loss. Yes. Because we are losing topsoil. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of our most incredible assets and one of the things that has made the Midwest so amazingly productive with all of these... um, uh, products that have been poured on to increase productivity even more. But it won't remain productive with that level of, of soil loss. And I think the latest figure shows something like 20% of soil globally is degraded. Mm-hmm. So we need to be focusing on the basic resources that are needed, yeah. soil, fresh water, um, the, the people and the skills that they need to grow food sustainably and mm-hmm. to to do so in a way that will bring them back decent livelihoods, we need to be thinking about that. But yeah. what politician is going to be get reelected on a platform of let's stop soil erosion? <laughs> it's, it, it's just it, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> 
right. I wish we could go on and on and on, Molly. It only says that we have to have you back in really literally in a few weeks. Like I'm booking for February, March now. And I, I hope you'll come back because I want to talk about the final section of the report and we don't have time for it today. But you have seven recommendations. Recommendations. Yeah. And I want to talk about the positive. I want to talk about like, okay, now we've laid out what the problems are. You know, let's let's start thinking about positive solutions, about re-regionalizing uh, agriculture and distribution, about mm-hmm. working on labor issues. You know, all of the stuff that I know that, you know, if if the, the people of this country think about it for five minutes, they'll want to do it and, uh, you know, just take it all back from from this ghastly incoming administration. Um, you and I will have to exchange um, phone numbers. Well, I have your phone number now and I will send you mine so that we can connect at the Women's March because you are coming down from Vermont to do that, right? Yes, You're going I to the am. one in D.C., right? I absolutely have to be there, and I'm bringing my daughter, too. Good for you. Who is uh, hugely concerned about Trump's record on women and oh. reproductive rights. I mean, any any the fact that he has no ag secretary pick means that he does he's literally completely in the dark about food policy and agriculture. Um, it's dismal. One of the things that I plan to do because I'm going down a few I'm driving myself, so I don't want to get caught in traffic. I am going to spend at least one of the days that I'm in D.C. going from office to office in the House of Representatives and in the Senate to complain and demand that they pay attention to things like food policy. That's great. I know. I think I think a lot of us should do that. If you're going to go down there for a few days, maybe you'll join me. Well, I've got to be back up here on on Monday. Yeah, I'm going to go We're in Wednesday. The middle of a teaching term, and I've got uh, yeah. students. But right. I I would oh, love to things. stay down, and I need to get down more often and show my face and in, in yeah, um, we need you molly we need your calls. voice that's right we need your voice more than any anything else so thank you so much for joining me on the show i will send you a note to make another date and um thanks so much to my sponsor today new york organic grown and certified did i say that right dave no <laughs> <laughs> that's me all over just can't get I, I usually i try to write that down but anyway they know what i'm I, they know i'm giving them the love new um, york state grown and certified new york state grown and certified thank you dave And Molly, thank you so much. And we'll see you next week for another great show about food policy and politics. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a good week. Thank you, Katie. My pleasure, Molly. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.